0: Heads. Father, grant us grace to understand what you've revealed to us in your word today. Uh, grant me grace to teach first rightly and, and secondly well. Uh, grant the hearers discernment to weigh what is said against the plumb line of your holy word and the witness of your Holy Spirit and grant grace to hold on to what is good. We pray in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. In the in the first decade or so of my life as a Christian, I had a tendency to imagine, or maybe hope, I suppose, but no, assume. I had a tendency to assume that all of the teachers and preachers that I heard... Um, and not all together, all of them, but the ones in the churches where I went to, or would go to, the ones in the in the Bible college I went to, or the the ones that were on the Christian radio station that I would listen to. That that all of those that were that were kind of in the in the camp that they were in complete agreement with one another and I, I knew there was such a thing as heresy and false teachers but I, but like I said I'm not talking about those I knew that was to be I knew early on there was false teaching and it should be corrected it should be identified and corrected and and, and not uh, certainly listened to after you realize this false teaching but I'm talking about the ones that were kind of in the circle of, uh, of believers and, and teachers and so forth that were kind of uh, on the reservation you know that that I would I would hear them and I would assume that they were all in agreement you know the Christian books that my friends were reading and recommending to me and that th- those those kinds of ones that had the platform where I was going to school or, or something like that I just assumed that they were in agreement with one another and if one of them seemed to teach something that was a little different or or not the same as what some what I heard from another teacher in a different place or Maybe the same place. I, I assume that somehow, somehow, it all came together somehow. That they really were in agreement with one another. And I just, I just couldn't, at the time, I couldn't grasp how. It was confusing to me. And I, I just set it aside. And said, it must go together somehow. What, what this guy said and what that guy said, it, it must fit together. And I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm still learning and I'm still growing. So there's hope. They're advanced, they're way up there. And and so maybe I'll get to the place where I'll see how it really fits together. Everything that everyone is saying at my seminary or my Bible college or my church or my Christian radio station or the things published at my Christian bookstore. It was a real epiphany for me to finally realize, and this took a while to finally realize that sometimes these teachers or preachers who all had kind of a stamp of approval at my seminary or my Bible college or Christian college, my denomination, my church, that they were not in agreement with one another about everything. That they really that they really were. This is an enlightenment to me that in some cases and on some issues they really are saying different things, and they're they're not in a, in agreement with it now it, it, with one another. It's not going to be something that is you know so doctrinally significant that I have to worry about which one of these is fal- a false teacher, which one of these is teaching heresy of some kind. Not something so significant as that, but but something less than that. But they still were really teaching different things about what they believed the Bible taught. And I still had to draw, and this was very helpful to me, to come to the conclusion that at least one of them, maybe both, but at least one of them wasn't getting the biblical teaching quite right. Now, it's very possible, I think, that you may be like I was when it comes to what we've been talking about these past couple of weeks here about the implications of the Bible's teaching on resurrection and the forever future of those who are in Christ. There is a strain of Christian teaching, and you've heard it, and as I'll demonstrate, you've sung it. There's a strain of Christian teaching that holds that heaven is our forever home, and that going to heaven when we die is the ultimate future for all who are in Christ. That's one strain of Christian teaching. And there is another strain of Christian teaching that you've also been taught, you're also familiar with, you've also sung that says that no our ultimate future our our ultimate forever home, our ultimate Christian home is not going to heaven when we die to live forever with Jesus that's our immediate hope that's where we want to go when we die to be sure but our ultimate hope as christians as presented to us in the in the new testament it's it's not going to heaven when we die but rather the ultimate hope is Jesus coming back from heaven to the earth to establish his kingdom to punish and do away with all evil to establish his eternal and righteous kingdom a reign in which all who are in Christ will share that that's the ultimate this is one of those cases where it was a real revelation to me to finally realize now these things don't really go together so well they're they, they don't they do not they do they don't really fit. They really are teaching different things. One, of course, is that the ultimate future, the, the forever future. We die, we go to heaven, we live with Jesus there forever and ever. Amen. The other is Jesus is coming back from heaven and bringing with those, those who have died in Christ, with, with him, those who have died in the Lord. They're different things and therefore they, they and really in some ways the contradictory things that, that have real implications for how we think and how we live and how we hope how we pray and they can't both be right in all of their details in all of their emphases because they're teaching something different in the hymnal in our pews we, we use today mostly as a backup right when the when the the projector goes out or the computer's not working or the electricity goes, something happens. You know, it's a backup for us us now. But in that hymnal, it seems to me that that first position, they're both in there, by the way. But the first one is dominant. The idea that our forever future as believers is to live in heaven forever with Jesus. When the trumpet, and you'll recognize some of these, I'm not going to sing them unless I can't help myself by saying the words. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, and time shall be no more, and the morning breaks eternal, bright, and fair, when the saved of the earth shall gather over on that other shore, and the roll is called up yonder. Some of these are older. When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. Up yonder. Resurrection, up yonder, over on that other shore. Here's a, here's another verse, same song. On that bright and cloudless morning, when the dead in Christ shall rise, and the glory of his resurrection share, when his chosen one shall gather to their home beyond the skies. When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. You see, in that song, resurrection, what's resurrection for? It's for living up yonder, over there, on that other shore, with Jesus forever. And by the way, I've said this before, but just to make the point, uh, time shall be no more. It's a misunderstanding of Revelation 10:6. If King James version, you have to have the King James version, which it says in that verse that there it has the phrase that there should be time no longer. Your translation, as long as you don't have the King James, but you have any other version, New American Standard, NIV, whatever you, might, you use, it reads something like that there should, in the same place, that there should be no longer any delay. It's like when someone says, hurry up, we're running out of time. You, you don't say, you know, like you'd be Doc Brown and Back to the Future, is there some problem with the space-time continuum? Oh, is time running? Is time disappearing? No, no. We're running out of time. Means we're running out of time in this context. Where it's a, it, it's a, we're being delayed too much. We're going to miss it. Eternity, at least for us creatures, is never-ending time. It's one moment following another eternally, not a static absence of time somehow that none of us could ever imagine. Here's another, here's another song, just to get off that point. I'm kind of homesick for a country to which I've never been before. No sad goodbyes will there be spoken, for time won't matter anymore. That's more like it on the time issue, by the way. <laughs> time won't matter anymore. Because we'll have a, an unending supply of it, it's not—we don't have to worry about time running out. And it's a very sweet song. It's a very sweet song, and it doesn't tip its hand on our eternal future until the refrain. Here's the refrain, at least the part, I'm using to illustrate this: "Beulah Land, I'm longing for you, and some day on thee I'll stand, where my home shall be eternal." Beulah land, sweet Beulah land. Eternal home, somewhere I've never been, over on that other shore, living with Jesus forever and ever. Here's another. Not not something older. Well, it's pretty old, but it's something we sing more often. Oh, a very triumphant song. Oh, that with yonder sacred throng, we at his feet may fall, will join the everlasting song and crown him Lord of all. Will join the everlasting song and crown him Lord of all. Eternal song, up yonder again. Up yonder. (laughs) Singing with the sacred throng, apparently everlastingly. It's it's kind of another version of amazing grace, isn't it, doctrinally, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We've been there 10,000 years. We've no less days to sing his praise than when we'd first begun. Think of that. The saints in heaven now, they've been here they're the ones who've been there the longest, two thousand years. Two. <laughs> you better get used to it. <laughs> the everlasting song. How about this one? Wonderful grace of Jesus reaching the most defiled, by its transforming power, making him God's dear child. Purchasing peace and heaven for all eternity. And it it, it certainly sounds like heaven is to be our eternal home. Here's one, Keith and Melody Green. Oh, there's a time I've been a Christian a long time. There's a time with Keith and Melody Green, they were all the church was all about Keith Green. They were marvelous, marvelous songs. Still love them. When I stand in glory. I almost can't say it without singing it, but I'm not going to do it. (laughs) When I stand in glory, I will see his face. There, there, I'll serve my king forever in that holy place. Same thing. Here's one we used to call contemporary. You came from heaven to earth to show the way. From the earth to the cross, my debt to pay. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. Lord, I lift Your name on high. It's got the incarnation. He came from heaven to earth, right? It's got the incarnation. Has the cross. From the cross, you know, from the from the uh, earth to the cross, my debt to pay. It has has his death, of course, from cross to the grave, and it has—it assumes the resurrection because it goes right to the ascension from the grave to the sky. Well, what's missing? Jesus came, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven. What's missing? He's coming back. (laughs) He's coming back. Now that song—it doesn't say he's not coming back. But it just kind of leaves it out. Here, here's one that we sing, Resurrection Sunday, Easter, with the same missing piece. Soar we now where Christ has led. Alleluia. Following our exalted head. hallelujah. Made like him, like him we rise. Alleluia. Ours the cross, the grave, the skies. You know, praise the Lord that there is something for us beyond Sharing Christ's suffering on the cross. Praise the Lord for that. And praise the Lord, there's something for us beyond the grave. But you know what? I'm tipping my hand here, although I've tipped it well before now. But praise the Lord also, there's something for us beyond the skies. Ours, the cross, the grave, the skies. I'm telling you, there's something after the skies. There's something after the skies, but if you take it take it at face value, that's it. When we get to the skies, oh, that's the ultimate forever and ever with Jesus somewhere else. Here's one one more that you'll remember from Christmas's past. Be near me, Lord Jesus. I ask thee to stay close by me forever and love me, I pray. Bless all the dear children in thy tender care and fittest for heaven to live with thee there. Once again, it sounds like the ultimate future, this, what this is all about is, is living with Jesus forever in heaven. And there's another strain. Now, that's... That's the one. It's, it's very strong, isn't it? Is that we sing it again and again and again and again. The, the, where that's the idea. And there's another strain of Christian teaching that, that you hear all the time. Maybe not as often as that first one, but you hear it. And you're not shocked by it. It doesn't occur to you that it's teaching something else. But you know what? It's teaching something else. It's not looking forward to to living with Jesus in heaven forever, forever as our ultimate and our final hope, but it's looking for Jesus' return from heaven to the earth to establish his kingdom forever in the new heaven and new earth, made new by Christ's transforming, saving power. That is the same power that will resurrect us thus fulfilling answering the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven interestingly a majority of hymns it seems to me when I look over the hymnal that majority of hymns that teach that, that, ha- that are that strain of Christian teaching, are sung during the Christmas season, too. Maybe it's the idea that Christ's first advent kind of naturally brings to mind his second advent, you know, to accomplish the things that were not accomplished in the in the first advent. You know, that this two, this is Christ's two coming, and the first brings to mind the second. Maybe that's why. But it seems like a lot of these hymns, these songs, are are that have that second strain, uh, we, we hear a lot in December, O come, desire of nations, bind all peoples within one heart and mind. Bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease. Fill the whole world with heaven's peace. Rejoice! Rejoice! Emmanuel, God with us, will come to thee, O Israel. You see that song? It's he came once in answer to their hopes and He's coming again. And when He comes, He's going to fill the whole world with heaven's peace. Here's another. For lo, the days are hastening on by prophets seen of old, when with the ever-circling years shall come the time foretold, when peace Shall over all the earth its ancient splendors fling, and the whole world sing back the song which now the angels sing. You see that you hear the emphasis. It's when he's going to come, and and the and the peace peace is going to is going to swallow up the earth. It's good. the whole world's going to be at peace. The whole world's going to send back the song which now the angels sing like the Old Testament prophecy. The, the, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. No one will say to one another, Know the Lord, for they'll all know them, the greatest to the less. They'll, everyone will know the Lord. Here's another, one of my favorites. Doctrinally, but my, my favorite one, we sing it at uh, Advent season. No more let sin And sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Where do you find the ground, by the way? (laughs) Right under your feet. (laughs) Terra firma. He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as, far as the curse is found. I can't sing that without thinking of Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The passage teaches that what happens to us in resurrection, in the undoing of sin and death, also happens to the creation, which fell into sin, into corruption, when man sinned. Sinned, and the whole creation, Romans 8 says, is so looking forward to that time. The next verse, same one, favorite of mine. Think of the emphasis about us going or Jesus coming. Which is it? As the ultimate, as the ultimate future, ultimate goal. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and wonders of His love and wonders of His love. You sing that one too. And it's more than Christmas. Here's one that has that second strain of teaching. Uh, it's You know it. It's dear to many Christians. And Lord haste the day. When the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. What's that? What's he looking forward to? I wrote that song. Oh, when the trump... When I finally go to heaven. No. What's he really looking for? When the Lord shall descend. These are two different visions of our ultimate future. One is believers going to live with Jesus forever in heaven. The other is Jesus coming back from heaven to earth to establish his everlasting kingdom. Now those, I have to say to be clear here, those who espouse the second teaching They do not deny, nor do they not hope, that believers go to heaven when they die. They just don't think that the Bible teaches that that's the end of it, that that's the ultimate future, that that's our ultimate hope, or our forever home. We laid out the case from the New Testament last week that the resurrection from every person who belongs to Christ is an event that will occur when Christ returns to the earth to establish his kingdom. An event that hasn't, hasn't yet occurred and that therefore those believers who have died and who are with the Lord in heaven right now have not yet been resurrected. I, I referenced quite a number of passages last week but I'll mention just a couple, read just a couple to reestablish the point. First Corinthians 15:23, 23 which was our jumping off place for this. I, this teaching, says that the resurrection event for believers will come in two stages. and here's the quote, "Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And then first Thessalonians 4, which clarifies that, that Christ will descend from heaven. when he does, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep and other those who have in other words those who have died. And the dead in Christ will rise first just before we who are alive, who remain, who are left, experience this immediate transformation, resurrection bodies without ever having died. But the dead in Christ rise first just before that happens. It's future, even for those who have died. And it begs some questions about what kind of existence there is for those who belong to Christ between death and resurrection, because you may have been thinking, like some of those songs teach, that you're resurrected and you're with Jesus in heaven. Resurrection is for living up yonder. That they're that they're raised now, but they're not. The resurrection of their bodies has not yet taken place. And it's it, it, so you have some questions that if the if the dead in Christ are not yet raised do they have any kind of bodily existence now or are they disembodied souls how how do they do they have any material substance to them at all and how can their present state of being with the Lord in heaven be better Even far better, as Paul says, than their prior existence like ours is now in the land of the living if they're still looking forward to the full and final installment of their salvation, which is the redemption of their bodies, resurrection. Now, I I wish there were a passage where an apostle says, Now, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware of the physicality of those believers now departed and with the Lord in heaven but there's no passage like that that I know of. If I wanted to argue, and please hear me now very carefully, so I'm trying to be careful in how I say it. If I wanted to argue that those now in heaven are disembodied souls with no material or physical existence at all, I would probably start with the point that I think I think I flatter myself that I've established without any doubt that resurrection is a future event the Bible's clear about it it says it over and over again and even for those who have died in Christ and I would go on from there and I would certainly include Paul's statement he says in 2nd Corinthians while we are at home in the body we are away from the Lord and then later a couple verses later we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord if I wanted to argue that the That there's no bodily existence of any kind for those who have died and are with the Lord now. I think that's where I I would have to mention those things. And I'm sure those who want to say that do. (laughs) But I can't argue that that way. And here's why. It's because the Bible gives us a few glimpses of the present life of saints in heaven between their past deaths and their future resurrection. And those glimpses, suggest some sort of bodily existence. Summer, Revelation 6, they cried out in heaven. They cried out with a loud voice. Well, cried out with what? <laughs> How could they do that? Could they do that in a disembodied state? Could they cry out with a loud voice? I hate to bring this up to be trivialize this way. Patrick Swayze sure had a hard time of it, and Ghost, you know, he couldn't—nobody could hear him till he ran into Whoopi Goldberg. You know, quasi-gifted could translate what he's trying to say to Demi Moore. And you think about the movies—it's really hard to to portray uh, uh, a disembodied soul, isn't it? Without using a body, maybe they cheated a little. <laughs> Deceased saints are seen to present requests to God in heaven. Revelation 6, again, they ask God things. They present requests. They, they, uh, Revelation 6:11. they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. What's a disembodied spirit to do with a robe? What would he hang it on? They're told to rest and wait. How did they hear that? Revelation 4:4 4, 4, around the throne get a glimpse into heaven right now and around the throne were 24 th- around the throne the main throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads and that even that verse right there it does not invite us to think of disembodied spirits because it has sitting down and wearing clothes and something on their heads and The plain language invites us to think of people with bodies who can sit and wear clothes and crowns. A few verses later, we see the 24 elders, quote, fall down before him who was seated on the throne, saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Chapter 20, Chapter 19, we see not only 24 elders, but a whole bunch of others. A great multitude... Of deceased saints, crying out with a loud voice, praising God. At the Mount of Transfiguration, we get a glimpse. We don't get we don't get to see heaven. We don't get to see into heaven, Mount of Transfiguration. But we get to see people from heaven. You know, as we as we read the text, Peter, James, and John saw them. We get their report. Elijah and Moses, Elijah and Moses with with Jesus interestingly Elijah apparently did not die you read in 2nd Kings and as they Elisha and Elijah were uh, still went on and talked behold chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven so he apparently went to heaven he didn't die he just was taken to heaven in his physical body but Moses did die Moses did die and at the Mount of Transfiguration, Elijah and Moses meet. They speak with Jesus. Peter, James, and John saw them both. And they both appeared to have bodily existence. I, I don't know how Peter recognized Elijah and Moses other than everybody knows Moses looks exactly like Charles Heston. But there's nothing in there in that text to suggest that Elijah and Moses appear differently in their mode of existence. You say, I see Elijah there, Moses there too. I think it's him. He's kind of ghosty looking. He looks like an apparition. I don't know. No, there's nothing like that at all. Moses didn't look like an like an apparition to to uh, Peter. He, to Peter, he looked like some like someone who could use a tent. If you remember the passage. So, so the biblical clues, and I admit they're just clues, but they lead me to think that God makes provision for believers in heaven with a bodily existence that enables human functioning there in that sphere for that time between death and resurrection that is not yet their true resurrection forever body. Others may be unconvinced and expect some sort of disembodied existence. Although, I, I will say this. I, I suspect that those who are expecting and thinking of a disembodied existence also might be the same. some of the same folks who have nagging and perhaps secret misgivings about heaven. You know, about, isn't it better here, really? Come on. <laughs> Lots of people go on and on about out-of-body experiences. Everybody knows in their heart of hearts that in body experiences are best, like lunch here in a little while. I, it, it makes me think of one of the stories I like to tell about this subject is of the uh, older Anglican priest who had a serious illness, and his assistant priest is talking to him about what's going to happen, you know, what's going to happen if he doesn't recover. And the older priest says, I suppose in that case I should enter eternal bliss, but I wish you wouldn't bring up such depressing subjects. I mean, if you think disembodied, wisp of something, you know what, no bodily existence, I suspect you know that kind of goes hand in hand with not looking forward to it too much. Not thinking it's going to be very good. But whether embodied or disembodied, unless the Lord returns before we die, we'll all know the truth of it soon enough, so I can wait if you can. But in either case, here and here's a more important question. How can it be thought of as being better than this? Especially knowing that true resurrection after the pattern of Christ's resurrection body is still to come even for those in heaven. And, P- and Paul says, it's better. It's better. He says, my desire is to part and be with Christ, for that is far better. 2 Corinthians 5, he says, his hope should be ours too. He says, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, I'd say this body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we should have that hope too. The passages are clear. Between the death of a believer and his or her future resurrection, this is the main part of being better. There will be a level and depth of fellowship with the Lord that is simply not possible here. It's just not possible. No matter how close you are or think you are to the Lord. I would think Paul would be kind of advanced, wouldn't you, in terms of his fellowship with the Lord, his maturity, his spirituality? He says for him, it's going to be far better. He had visions like you and I have not had, I suspect. He says it's going to be far better. When I was a child, I used to, it was common to carry on relationships by what we now call snail mail, but it was a, it was a thing. I'm old enough to remember when that was a thing. You wrote letters, and I, I enjoyed getting a letter from my dad when I was away from him. I, when I was with my dad, I enjoyed getting a letter from my mother, and I read them and I wrote them. And, it, and the, te- the telephone was a luxury. There, of course, we had telephones, but in, in the antediluvian era, era when I grew up, there was, it was a luxury because there was this something called long-distance charges. You know, and it was really expensive to talk on the phone. But when you did get a chance to talk on the phone, it was better than the letter because you could hear the tone of voice, you, immediate interaction back and forth. You could have a, a real conversation. Now, every about once a week, we, we Skype, if you know what that is. I'm sure you do. We Skype with our daughter Rebecca and her family, and that's even better than the phone We can, as we can see them and, and they can see us, and we can pick up on facial expressions, and we can pick up on body language, you know, and it's 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 better. And it's almost like being together, but you know what? Not quite. Not quite. Uh, Skyping, as great as it is, so much better than calling on the phone or exchanging texts or something like that, it's not a personal visit. It's not the same as being in the same room together. It, it's... It's it's not the same as enjoying one another's company, whether you're talking or not. Don't you like when someone's visit, someone you love, and you visit them, or they visit you? Isn't it nice to to be together when when you're not talking sometimes? When you're Skyping, you're on the phone. You there's a need. You have to talk back and forth. Maybe I'm just talking as a guy right now, but I bet it's like there's you have to talk back and forth. But you know when you're when you're with one another, you don't have to talk. You don't have to fill up every single moment. And it's, there's there's something good about just being together, right? Be able to touch one another, able to hug one another. Now, now some of you might characterize your relationship with the Lord now as something like exchanging emails or. You know, text messages and some of you might characterize your relationship Lord as no, it's like more like a phone conversation. But no matter what, no matter what your experience of knowing and loving and fellowship with God now, it will pale in it will pale in comparison to that which you will experience the moment the moment death separates you from your fallen corrupt body in death and and there's more there's more than one reason why we'll have this improved relationship one we've just talked about and it's plain he's not here in, here's why it's limited now he's not here in the same way that he is in heaven and we are not there like we will be when death separates us from this body and we're going to be with the lord in a new way that we've not experienced before but there's another reason why i think the fellowship with christ will be improved you see in my relationship this i hope this doesn't shock you to realize it but it probably won't in my relationship with christ now there are certain issues between us that are not conducive to that relationship to be in what it can be and should be and it probably it shouldn't surprise you that all the issues are on my side <laughs> all of them it, it, it's, it, to be honest it's chronic on my side Christ is constantly forgiving me of the same old offenses or, or similar ones maybe even some new ones now and again, if it to restore fellowship and come back together cl- more closely. In, in, in fact, if it weren't for his great love for me and his inexhaustible willingness to forgive and restore fellowship between us, I think if it were anyone else, I would have burned that bridge a long time ago. He said to forgive 70 times 7, right? I passed that with him a long time ago. 490, what's that? I can do that in six months. (laughs) And my relationship with the Lord is yours too. Different issues probably. Issues just the same. Making it where it's not like what it could be. And they're all on your side. It frustrated even the Apostle Paul. He said, who will free me from the body of this death? He was frustrated with it. Well, death severs the leverage sin exerts against us through the means of fallen and corrupt flesh. Romans 6, for one who has died has been freed from sin. You know, when a believer dies, he will already have committed the last sin he will ever commit in thought, word, deed. Everybody who comes to the funeral, they all still got it. They all still have that. They all still have that struggle against the flesh. They, that remains. Even that guy who's conducting the service, he has it too. But the one who has died is done with it. It's over. No more struggle. No more frustration with yourself. No more loss of fellowship with God that can only be restored through confession, repentance, forgiveness. No more fleshly anger. No more lust. No more selfish hatreds that are either known to you and others or you keep secret, maybe even from yourself. No more prideful resistance against God's authority in your life. No more laziness about doing what's right we, we we really could look at death as a, a final sanctification the completion of our sanctification we could even the process of dying you could look at that as final sanctification death is it's it's the last trial of that leaves, that will leave, a, every genuine believer will leave you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing in terms of your, your spirit, your relationship with God, your maturity. And being free from sin will also be free from the awful effects of sin, no more sickness, no more personal brokenness, no more crying, no more mourning, no more death. It's an enemy, it's the last enemy which remains to be defeated, but it's the last trial of faith any one of us will ever face. And it's one that will absolutely, absolutely sever and remove the last remaining leverage of sin against us. Everyone who is in Christ will live on. The sin will have died. along with its sad and debilitating and crippling and tragic effects. And it's going to bring us into an experience of knowing and loving and being with Christ like we have never, ever known in this life, nor could we. And yet we've always wanted it from the day we welcomed him into our lives. We'll get it. And so yes, it's better. And all of this with resurrection and fullness of life in the new heavens and the new earth yet to come, which we will experience together, everybody, same day, whether we die and are with heaven in the interim, with with Jesus in heaven in the interim, or whether we remain until he comes back that day we're all looking forward to together, we'll experience together. Same day, same time. Let's pray. Lord, uh, quicken these hopes in, in us all that we might not dread the last enemy for ourselves or for our departed in Christ, but that we would see and believe and trust that because Christ has led the way, sin will perish with the body and also its terrible effects, short of but ultimately including death, which will also usher us into the presence of Jesus Himself in a way that we've never known but have desired since You first gave us new life in Christ through faith in Him. Uh, Lord, strengthen the faith of every believing soul and draw the one who remains outside of Christ, and without hope in this world or the next, to faith and eternal life in Christ, we pray in His name. Amen.